Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. This is Perry Marshall. Hello and welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast. And I am here with Caldoun Swice. And Caldoun is a very interesting gentleman. I met him because he came and interviewed me a few months ago. And he's an associate professor in the humanities at City Colleges of Chicago. And he's a guy who has a very intense interest in linking rationality with spirituality and faith. And he's got a very interesting story. This one is a, well, frankly, it's tearjerker, but it's really impactful. And Caldoun has a long list of distinguished institutions that he's either studied at, spoken at, very sharp guy, very aware of complex nuanced issues and author of at least three books. Am I anywhere close to an accurate count on that one? Doing a great job so far. Okay. <laughs> well, so, so Caldoun, welcome. And maybe before we get into the deep stuff, maybe you could just tell me a little bit more about what your specific research interests are and what you specifically lecture and podcast about. Your website is logicallyfaithful.com, which is a very, there's a lot of meaning embedded in that. So why don't you give people a little bit of a picture of yourself and then we'll get into your story. Okay. Well, contrary to popular opinion, logically, logic and faith don't necessarily contradict each other. That's right. Although they're in the common vernacular, sometimes they do. Well, basically, I'm, uh, my ministry and uh, the goal and one of the uh, perspectives that I focus on in my life and in my career and in my ministry is being part of a change agent in culture, uh, helping to redeem culture and to address suffering productively using the avenue of apologetics, helping people to navigate the roads and the dark waters of, uh, of suffering or of life in general grounded in that which is good, true, and beautiful. That's a lot to aspire to, but it's very worthy. I don't think there are too many people who would disagree with the statement that our culture could use a little redemption here and there. What entire Western education without contemplating these complex issues? Right. Well, and so when you use terms like Western education, like, yeah, well, yeah, there's a whole lot of systems that, that need to be fixed. So you're a dad, you're a husband, you're a college professor. And um, when I was familiarizing myself with your work, I found this riveting story. And hearing the story will help people understand why when you talk about pain and suffering, you're actually 
quite serious about those things. So rewind as far as you want to go and tell us where this part of the story begins with your son, particularly. Okay. Um, Well, in 2006, we found out that the child my wife was pregnant with was, quote, incompatible with life. It was our first child, and he uh, was not able to have the ability to function in his lung capacity to reach or draw in uh, even a simple breath of air. Well, We found that out through the amniocentosis at around six months' time. It was a devastating revelation to us. I found out later that this has um, been given by many people have done this and gone through this. It's not just us, and there are many who've gone through much worse. When Enoch was born, he didn't make a sound for obvious reasons. He died in my hands, in my arms. It was a, a very dark time for me. It was a very difficult time. I was really looking forward to celebrating his life and went through a lot of prayer, a lot of deep reflection. Uh, top experts in the field everything from genetics, uh, studying um, areas of the lung capacities and steroid use, et cetera, to help him. Nothing seemed to have a lasting effect. In regard to my faith, people tell you that I believe in Christ or I believe in my faith or I believe in God because he helps me through the night or helps me deal with suffering. He comes through for me. Well, well, he didn't come through for us that time. (laughs) He didn't work. Faith did not work. It was not pragmatically useful. So at that point, I had to really ask myself in the arsenal of apologetics and theology I had grounded myself in for years, I knew the answers intellectually, cognitively. I just didn't know how to connect them emotionally, experientially, existentially. And that was a bridge I needed to walk through. It wasn't until um, a few weeks later that I... I had collapsed on the kitchen floor, almost in a fetal position, weeping, dropping my cup of coffee, realizing what I lost. Although I knew the answers up here, I didn't grasp them down here. There's a lot to this. And a lot of times, walking through the valley of the shadow of death reveals to you who you are and what you're capable of doing and who you know you should not be. Hmm. So you went to the doctor and the doctor said, well, you guys have this really serious problem. And the doctor didn't think that you should continue with the pregnancy. And you had convictions about that. And you had a way that you decided to walk through this from that point forward. So there's already decisions to make. So maybe you could start with what was your general outlook on life the day before any of this was known to you and then help us understand the transformation that you started experiencing as all of a sudden you're hit with quite a journey and numerous forks in the road that you can choose to take. Well, the day before we found out the diagnosis or prognosis, it was more of a pie in the sky type of attitude. 
a child's going to be born, we will continue on in our daily life. We'll enjoy that. We will have celebration, um, a sense of belonging, a community, family, etc. cetera. Uh, joy in the Lord and thankfulness for his goodness and his provision. However, the day after that, I realized on a deep level that what I believed about God, what I believed about my life and life in general, was not coherently connected to the reality around me. I had taken an animistic view of God on a subliminal level and that I didn't realize I did. Hmm. When I say animistic, what I mean is um, the ancients and some of the people today, even the, some of the common druids, what they do is they use the mystic arts or they use sacrifices to manipulate the gods so they can do for them, this is grow their crops, provide health for their children, give them the next opportunity and a job, etc. So if I could do ABC for God, then he is obligated to do DEF for me. Mm. And, and, yeah. and in my evangelical world or my Christian worldview, it seemed to be Bible reading, faithfulness to my wife, my country, my community, um, being an all good guy, a faithful professor, um, high level of scholarship, doing that which I'm supposed to be doing. Therefore, I'll put that in the cosmic slot machine of God. Push the button, and he's supposed to deliver to me a healthy child, a wonderful wife, a healthy body, a wonderful job, right? Well, you know, when you put it that way, it sounds a little bit ridiculous, but you have to admit that is implicit in an awful lot of conversations and in songs and in stories and... So, like, it is, yeah, I mean, you're right. If you do A, B, and C, God will bless you. If you honor God with your work, with your tithing, with your community, if you pick up the trash, if you don't speed, God <laughs> will bless you. Really? Well, sometimes what we find in Scripture, what we find in reality, we find in the story of Job, the story of Abraham, the story of Jeremiah. No, some of the closest people to God are those who suffered the most. Some of the greatest heroes in all of history, whether you're talking about mythology or theology, are the ones who have the deepest wounds. Some of God's closest saints are the ones he wounds the most. It's a reality I had to come to a realization about that was not easy to accept. It's interesting to me that we, we do buy into that mythology or the, uh, delusional mythology, if I may, that God is there for me rather than I am there for God. I remember there was a, something C.S. Lewis wrote where he was getting uh, feedback from his uh, contemporaries, his secular contemporaries at the time who were telling him that God is a dream that you have, this theistic dream or delusion Lewis wrote back a fascinating poem where he said to God in that poem that they tell me, oh God, that you are my dream. Alas, it is the other way around, oh Lord. I am your dream. I am the manifestation of that dream becoming reality. I think it's a perspective shift. When you see that life and suffering is just, um, it's God's avenue, it's God's modus operandi to make us into the people and the men and women he wants us to be. And I can't tell you, Perry, how much this means to me, but it means more than words can say 
but in the words that I'm limited to put forward, I've learned more about myself, about the world, about life, and about God more during that period of time than I ever did ever in my life. And I grew more during that time than ever before. So how did this unfold? So the day before you have this animistic picture of mm-hmm. God, there's a little bit of slot machine. And then the doctor delivers this news. Yes. Then um, what? When the doctor delivered the news, sorry, I'm keep shifting back and forth here. <laughs> you have to keep me on track if you can, brother. Uh, the option of abortion was on the table. And I had to come to this, um, see, I had already come to a decision of what I believed about life and where life begins and where life, uh, whether life begins at conception or was it something that develops later on. Those ideas have already come to me. And before we even come to an idea, it's already built in within us or given to us or programmed for us or whatever it was. I told the doctor at that point, I will not murder my child. Now, that may seem a harsh statement for those who have gone through a portion and who have gone through that dark reality, and I don't mean to say that as a passing of a judgment. It is a, I wish it on nobody. But human life begins at conception, scientifically speaking, and I can argue that philosophically, scientifically, if you want me to. And I was convinced of that. And I was also convinced that God is a God of miracles, and if he so chose, he can heal Enoch. So as an act of faith, not necessarily that God will do it, but as an act of obedience that I will do the right thing in the situation that was there, which is give him a chance. So that is why we did not take that option, because I did not believe that I had the right to take that life. It wasn't in my hands to do that. It wasn't my prerogative to do that. There's so much more to say about it, but you can ask me details. I could try to. Well, so you left things to the best that medicine could do to make it work and to natural processes. Yes. Which certainly suggests that you believe that God is active in nature that there's a bigger plan than you. There's a bigger plan than us. We are part of nature. We can't control nature, but you said, my son has a life and I'm not going to take it into my own hands to try to make this easier. I am going to receive what life has handed to me. Um, I'm going to preserve life to the best of my human ability. Yes, yes, you can say that. Sometimes we don't realize that the trajectory of our entire life can change by one decision. Yeah. Walk over a certain bridge. If you open a certain door, you can never come back from it. There are certain things that you do that you cannot reverse. And it was not a bridge I was willing to walk over. Now, there are other bridges I walked over, which I regretted in my life, uh, but that was one of them that I just could not do. Yeah. Deep level. Um, it was not my right. So, how many months pregnant at this Six point? Months. Six months. Okay. So, now you have three months of dealing with a whole new set of anxieties. Yeah, we had a bedroom all set up for the baby. 
We had to deal with that. Imagine coming home, empty bedroom, empty crib. The depth of sorrow is a, is a, it's hard to explain that. It's hard to articulate that. But that is where God meets us, isn't it? Lewis said, God speaks to us in our joys and he shouts to us in our pains. This is his megaphone to rouse a dead world or a deaf world. So I had a friend a long time ago and we were in a spiritual group together and somebody was reading one of the Psalms and it might've been this one. God is our strong refuge. He is truly our helper in times of trouble. For this reason, we do not fear when the earth shakes and the mountains tumble into the depth of the sea and so on. That's Psalm 46. Okay. And my friend said, Hey, you guys, what the hell does this mean? (laughs) Now, if everything's sort of going okay Mm -hmm. and there's not bombs dropping everywhere, it sounds really nice. Like it's great poetry. Okay. Right. But when your whole life gets slammed into like a Mack truck, then what does it mean? So you go home from the doctor checkup and you've already bought all these baby things and you drive home in the car and, I don't know if you talked or you just wrote in silence and then you're uh, this looming like, wow. So what's going to happen when this baby comes? Well, now what does this mean? Mm -hmm. Like I am guessing you have a much better idea what that song means now Mm -hmm. than you did then. Yes. When David was in writing Psalm 23, the most famous Psalm in the scriptures, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you. You are with me. You rod and your staff. They comfort me. These words can be empty poetry if the God I believe in is a manifestation of my own delusions. Or as Sigmund Freud <laughs> talked about, a wish fulfillment type of argument. I want it to be true so much that I manifest this God in the sky, my type of mentality. And I believe in, I trust in this uh, pie-in-the-sky Zeus-like figure who doesn't exist, who gets me through the night because it makes me feel good. If that's the case, then yes, it is empty poetry. It's no good as wishing on Santa Claus or Bruce Wayne Batman in your mind. It doesn't make a difference on the long run. It just helps you through, um, maybe on a deep uh, sub- subjective level. But what if there is a God who is the shepherd, who is your creator, who has established himself through history, manifested himself in the incarnation of Jesus of Nazareth, left his footprints in Jerusalem, and established it through solid historical, archaeological, sociological evidence. At that point, the one who doesn't believe it is the one who's delusional, not the God himself. And as it was that grounding in apologetics that helped me, Perry, on a deep level. Now, apologetics didn't save me per se. I could say in a theological sense, it was a sanctification process for me. It kept me saved. And just for those who may not know the term, apologetics is the system of rational arguments for the authenticity of 
Christianity, although the, the term can apply to other religions too. But, yeah. you know, there's a lot of literature that you could label as apologetic literature. Mm-hmm. Was Jesus real? Did Jesus rise from the dead? Are the Gospels accurate history? Do miracles really happen? So keep going. Okay. You had philosophically and intellectually delved into that quite a bit long before this ever happened. So you actually had a logical supporting structure, whether or not it comforted you, it, it at least gave you a scaffolding. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? Yes. I'll say that there. It gave me a grounding, a solid grounding that when the volcano of life erupted around me, I was not able to see to deal with life in a proper fashion. And I kept asking myself, is this some kind of cosmic joke? Uh, have I been fooling myself the whole time? And that point, this is where my training, the readings I've been doing for so many years, the connections of drawing the dots between the, what is real and what is make-believe and connecting and, and seeing the difference between the two. Mm-hmm. There's a difference between epistemology and ontology. The difference yeah, you need to knowledge. define those terms. Sure. Uh, epistemology is the science of studying knowledge. It's uh, asking the question, how do we know what we know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I epistemologically know that I am uh, a man, that I am an American, that I am a Jordanian. These are things I know intellectually speaking. But in order for them to be ontologically real, I'll have to have an American passport. <laughs> I have to have blood in my veins. I have to have more than a Y chromosome. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, these are evidences in, in grounded in reality, which is the ontology of being, God being the ultimate being himself. So I knew these things on a deep level, but I needed to see that my epistemology was also grounded in ontology, meaning it was real, some of the things I did believe. And from what we do know and from what I did know, I thought, all right, the worldview I have embraced in Christ himself as a manifestation and the incarnation of God himself is as true as you can possibly get. And that reality, the man who suffered, tells us that the suffering itself is not in vain. I will redeem every tear you cry. Every blood that's spilled through all of history does not go unnoticed by God. Justice will come. Justice will come. Now, this is comforting to me because the one who spoke it was a real historical figure. I was the other day um, talking to a gentleman who told me, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I also believe when I mentioned Christ. He said, I also believe in the flying spaghetti monster, which is the jab coming from Bertrand Russell and recently from Dawkins, that God that we believe in as believers is just as real as the flying spaghetti monster that circles the moon and who's undetectable. <laughs> The problem with this kind of methodology that they throw out is they completely ignore the fact that God mentioned as Yahweh in the scriptures manifested himself in human history and he has on his resume things that the spying spaghetti monster does not have. Right. There's a grounding in history of miracles to substantiate his name. Eyewitness testimony even from his enemies. So we have this stuff in history that we can uh, ground. We also have testimony of miracles for Christians throughout the ages. And the testimony in my own life of God's miraculous work in me. These apologetic resources help me realize that, no, this is not a cosmic joke at all. There's, there's truth to it. 
in that truth. It's like an anchor, uh, Perry, an anchor that you hold on to when the storms hit. And when the storm passes, you realize it's grounded in something real, true, and ultimately beautiful. So one thing I found that Psalm 46 or some of these beautiful pieces of poetry, yes, it does not mean God's going to come and fix the problem that you're having right now. It doesn't mean that. Now, one of the ways where this gets a whole lot deeper and it grinds a whole lot harder is it's one thing if God is a theoretical construct that you constantly question and you're not really sure you have any solid evidence for. But there's another point that comes where, like, personally, I've seen multiple miraculous events with my own two eyes. I've been in the room two different times when people deaf for more than 30 years got their hearing back. Mm. And then I interviewed them after it happened. Okay. And that's a story for a different day. It's one thing to think that there might be a God out there who is going to comfort you and someday restore all things and wipe all the tears it gets a little bit deeper when you realize that it is possible for Enoch to get healed, but there is no guarantee that that's going to happen. And then we still have to decide whether we believe God is good or not. That's right. How would you respond to that or expand on it? Well, you need to ask, we need to ask ourselves these questions, Perry, because of the way you put that. Uh, take, the, for example, the story of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, the, in the, the story of Daniel. When King Nebuchadnezzar put them through the fire, threatened to burn them alive in the fiery furnace, they said, Oh, King, we will not bow down to you or your idols. Uh, the God we believe in can save us. But if he does not save us, we will still not bow down to you and your idols. And I think we can draw that back to ourselves here in, in, in the area of suffering. God is able to heal my son. He's able to restore my mother. He's able to bring back my marriage. He's able to do these things. He's able to restore my city. Yes, he is able. But if he does not, I will still honor him. Yet he slay me, yet shall I trust him, as Job said. I will not bow down to the idols of selfishness, materialism, hedonism, polytheism or selfishness i will not bow to these idols whether he saves me whether he gives me what i want or not and i think this is one of the most pivotal tests of the christian life of life in general do you believe what you believe or is it all empty poetry you don't know it until the fire starts raging around you then you can test yourself but you can ground yourself before that comes. You can study apologetics. You can study theology. You can study the great histories of the world and realize I don't have to make the same mistakes that others have made. I can learn. And by learning, you equip yourself. Study to show yourself approved of the Lord, Paul says. Why? Because when the storm comes, and it will come. Mm-hmm. It will come. This is one of the things Jesus actually promised. In this world, you will have trouble. But then he says this, take heart. I have overcome 
the world. So since the storm is coming, as the noetic flood would tell us, uh, if we could use that as our archetype for today, am I prepared with the ark that's around me? Is it built of straw? Is it built of hedonism? Is it built of materialism? Is it built of scientism? Or is it grounded in reality? A reality that is shaped from both the spiritual and the physical. And I think both of those perspectives gives us a holistic view of life that helps me appreciate that. My goal in my life is not to be happy per se, because ultimately all of us will lose that. We will lose everything we love and everyone we love. Every wonderful thing I have, my body, my health, my community, my wife, my children, my parents, everything ultimately will be gone. So what is the goal of life then? Maybe the goal of life is not for me to be happy. Maybe the goal of life is for me to be holy. And from that holiness, there's a link to that ultimate happiness. I don't think a flower or a seed that grows into a flower, if it can cognitively reflect that is, tells itself, I don't need the sun. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Who's the one who loses here? The sun or the flower? We can say to God, I don't want you. Okay. Who's the one who will lose? You're not made to survive without me. You cannot live without the sun. It is impossible to have an ultimate happiness independent of the source of the happiness or the source of the sun, source of light himself. Let's keep in mind, though, light generates, uh, the sun generates uh, two basic properties, which is light and the other is heat. And heat burns away that which is not commensurate with itself. So the closer we get to God, the more painful it can be because sin starts to rip us uh, apart. And we realize there's parts of ourselves that are not right, that are not beautiful, that are not good, that are not holy. And they begin to rip and fall off us and burn off us. And many of us are too, it's too painful, Perry. It is. So we draw back away from the light and we live in the darkness. That's why Jesus, when he said, the light came into the world, but the world rejected it. Why? It's too painful. I don't want to deal with my own junk. I don't want to look at darkness. Uh, excuse me, look at my own darkness. But the problem is, if I stay into that darkness, stay into that sin, long term, it will destroy me and everyone around me. And uh, I think the purifying um, love of God is so wonderful that he allows these trials in our life to purify us, to shape us. This is where God makes the difference between some of the darkest substances on earth, which is coal, when pressed intensely, becomes one of the most precious elements and one of the hardest substances on earth, the diamond. And I think that's what God's after with us. So you're sitting in a delivery room and you hold your son. Could you talk about you? Yeah. You had a brief experience of your son before he died. Yes. Tell me just a little bit about what that was like. Well, when Enoch was delivered, uh, he didn't make a sound because he wasn't able to. Um, they did everything we could to rest, uh, reciprocate him and with a respirator and whatnot to bring in air and oxygen, and hopefully some of the steroids would have worked, but they didn't. After um, a few seconds of that, a few minutes, nothing there. They, they t- gave him to me. I held him in my hands, 
it's painful. I'll never forget that memory as long as I live. And even if I live as long as God himself, I'll never forget his hand. He actually held on to my finger. And then I felt him let go. He was teeny. If you've ever held your child realizing he's dying in your own hands, the um, sense of hopelessness and helplessness is overwhelming, Perry. I don't know how some people deal with this when their child is even older and living with them and developing that relationship. That's even much more um, painful, much more detrimental. I don't know how people do it. But anyway, I held Enoch and I remember saying to him, one day, my son, I will see you again. One day we will walk on streets of gold together. One day we will. Reflecting back on that moment, it would have been, like you said, empty poetry. If it, all it was was just words, just to make myself feel good. You know, ironically speaking, I had finished my doctoral thesis about a year earlier than that. And the topic was, get this, Perry, evidence for the soul. <laughs> that helped ground it for me. Because as we buried him three weeks later, those are three weeks later, a few days later, excuse me, my mind's getting jumbled up here. My niece was there at the funeral. And as they buried and laid down that little coffin into the ground, somebody made a comment that he's in a better place or something like that. I guess people say these things to make themselves feel good. Or do they really mean it? She said something I'll never forget. She was tugging on her mom's arm. She was about six years old at the time. Mom, how could he be in a better place when he's right there? She pointed to the coffin. Profound words you can get from a child. She's right. If all he is is a body, a biological anatomical structure, then there is no better place. He's here. Unless the human being is a conglomeration of more than just the physical. And that leads us to a different discussion. What evidence do you have for the soul? Is that also a cosmic joke, poetic notions that religious people concoct to make themselves deal with the darkness? And I think in some level it is just a story. And another level, no, there's actually evidence for it. Now, the evidence is not the same as the physical evidence, of course. But anyway, that grounding for me made me realize that the words I said to Enoch are not just poetry. I will see him again. Why do I believe that? Because Jesus himself died and rose from the dead. And he said, because I live, you shall live too. And that gives me hope beyond hope. And David himself, when he lost his son, said, I cannot bring him to me, but I shall go to him. So you buried your son, and now you have a fork in the road. And maybe one way you could define that fork would be God is good or God is bad. Or even there is no God. That would be three. And, you know, like everybody, no matter what religion you are, no matter what you believe or not believe, 
life is going to throw you really nasty stuff sometimes. So tell me about where those alternative roads would be leading you. Help us understand like door number one, door number two, door number three. Okay, let's go through them. Let's say door number three is the door that says there is no God. The problem with that door is that the evidence is insurmountably against that hypothesis. The evidence in cosmology, which indicates to us that the universe didn't begin to exist at approximately 14 billion years ago. All the scientific evidence seems to point to that postulation and that time, space, and energy, matter, etc., began to exist. And it didn't just begin to exist, it also began to exist in particular formations. Chaos exploded and something happened from there and from whatever happened there started the chain reaction for the, the known universe that we know of and the planetary structures and even the laws of nature. These things don't just happen. The accidents like that <laughs> are astronomically improbable to the level that it becomes absurd to say that it is. It's like playing um, 100,000 times playing poker and constantly getting a full flush, full royal deck. This just doesn't work. Well, it happens every now and then. Somebody told me, well, let's say, okay, try doing that at least twice with the mafia. <laughs> tell me you got full flush twice. Yeah, see how long you will last. I mean, you don't have to be a genius to figure out some things. Some books are cooked. Somebody's got his hands in the pudding. Somebody planned it. I think yeah. the evidence in cosmology is overwhelming. The evidence in design, whether you're talking about the cosmological level, the planetary level, or even at the DNA level, is just Perry. I mean, you've done your work on the, the DNA molecule. Oh, I have done my work on this. Yeah. Wow! Talk about a self-replicating machine of the highest magnitude. This is something that we can't even see with the naked eye that right. we're still trying to duplicate, uh, even at the highest levels. I mean, I don't understand how people could look at this. This is the greater miracle to me, that people could look at the evidence and say it was just happened. It was just time plus chance. Um, just kind of come together with chaos. I don't think that works. First off, time is a, um, it doesn't have any substance, so it can't do anything. Matter by itself is just a clock. I mean, a long, it's just there. It can't do anything without information. You require complex information in order for you to move that across, and you need energy, you need potential energy. You need intelligence for that to work. So even the hypothesis of time plus chance um, worked out in the long run doesn't work. Even the multi-universe hypothesis still indicates some kind of intelligence behind it, something to put that, um, uh, to get the ball rolling, some kind of specified complexity. Um, so, so there are the more multiple reasons why that will work. You could get into the moral argument as well, et cetera, where morality is grounded in something objective, not subjective. So I would think door number one is a plausible option. Door number two, which is that God is evil. Lewis talked about that as an option when he lost his wife, Joy. I think that's the most insidious of them all. I think that's what the devils want us to embrace. I don't think the devil was trying, or the Satan, when he was trying Job to convince him that God doesn't exist. No, it was worse. He was trying to convince him that God is evil or malevolent that God does not want his best interest. Go ahead and curse God and die, he said through his wife's voice. That is the option you want to steer away from the most. 
Now, why? Logically speaking, in order for you to have an evil, you must have a good. And whatever that good is, it must be the highest possible good there is. The highest possible good is what St. Anselm called the being from whom nothing greater can be conceived. And if such a being exists, the opposite of that being cannot exist because there can't be two omnipotent beings in the same possible universe. It's just not conceptually, philosophically possible. Can you imagine there are two beings that are both omnipotent, omniscient? They would know what would happen before they even started the fight. Imagine trying to get in an arm wrestle with each other. They're both just as strong as each other. It's impossible. And they know who wins before they even started. This, these concepts can't exist. It's like the immovable object and the unstoppable force. Both of these can't exist in the same universe. You can't have an evil being without first have presupposing a good being, and a good being presupposes that evil doesn't work. I think there's actually um, Minerva, which is part of the Zoroastrian religion, believes there are two gods who are constantly at war. That explains the, the chaos we have in life. That doesn't work on a deep conceptual level. It has its problems at a deep, deep level. And it's very uh, detrimental to the psyche. Uh, if God is an evil being, it doesn't follow because in order for something to be evil, it has to be a derivation from that which is good. One of the appeals of God being evil is, well, I'm a parent and I'm good and I want life for my son and God obviously doesn't. So they may not actually say this, but like, I'm better, I'm nicer than God. Well, you got to think about that. Right. But you got to think about it in a deeper level, right? Right, Perry? I mean, with your work, it's always a superficial that looks like it's right until you look deeper. You walk into a crime scene and it looks like the man killed himself. But when you look deeper, you found out he was set up to look like he killed himself. Right. It takes an expert eye, a trained eye to see that this is a murder, not a suicide. When I took my, um, see, later on, I was able, God blessed uh, me with two other children. Out of the flames of that phoenix's blood and ashes, God rose up to me two magnificent kids, two others, that would not have come otherwise. And that's a whole different discussion and a story that's, that's a remarkable in itself. When I took that little boy, which God gave me later, his name is uh, Daniel Zacharias, to the doctor, he was about three or four, and he had to get some immunization shots and you know, there are other people there as well and trying to explain to him, why do I need to get an immunization shot? Okay, let me explain it to you. See, the human um, system uh, requires itself to uh, fight against infections and bacteria and, back and viruses at a deeper chromosomal level. And I'm trying to explain this to him at, at the bacterial level as well as in viruses. And so you need this to help increase your metabolism and increase your ability to fight on these infectious uh, substances that will invade your system. He'll look at me and go, what? What are you talking about, Daddy? <laughs> They're scanning me with a needle. Stop it. That's all he wants. He doesn't understand. And I can feel God telling us when we're telling him, stop it. He'll say, hush, my child. You don't understand. It's hurting you, I know. But you don't understand. It's the height of arrogance to assume we know more than the omniscient one, is it not? The height of it. I know better. Here's my philosophical argument to argue against you because uh, I can't understand what you're doing. Therefore, it follows logically that you must be incorrect and malevolent or vile. It just doesn't add up. 
Well, if you really believe that human beings are the tippy top of the food chain and really are the top of the intelligence chain and everything else, that is a terribly depressing way of looking at the world. Like, yeah. my goodness. Like, Absolutely. And it leads to ultimate despair. I mean, look how much of a good job we've done of sort of structuring our societies through the last uh, six, seven thousand years of human history. There are some wonderful parts of human nature, but there are also some very demonic parts. The things we are capable of doing to each other just surpass anything an animal can con even conceive. It's terrible, Perry. Uh, we are capable of such wonderful, beautiful things. We are also capable of the most disastrous demonic things. Take the most, the worst thing that could possibly happen. You always have some son of a gun who could come and make it worse. Yeah. Yeah, you can. I mean, with my circumstance, uh, there are people who've gone through what I've gone through and even worse. Some have lost all their children. I know a pastor and his wife have lost six children in Chicago alone. It was an explosion in their van. Oh, and yes. you can take that and make it worse because your mind is a powerful tool. There's a prayer when we pray that God would calm the storm around us. But the greater miracle, Perry, is this. When God calms the storm within us, we become the peace and the strength in the storm. And people see that. And God is more glorified through that than he is if I'm sitting on a beach with my margarita in my hand. So the option that God is evil doesn't work logically because in order for God to be evil, there has to be some good to make it evil. Where did that good come from? It would come from the greatest possible being. Uh, the greatest possible being would be perfection. Perfection itself is a derivative of what is actually good. So the other negative being itself would not exist. It would actually be a non-existent being because evil by definition is a devaluation or a um, devaluation or like a, a moving away from that which is good, holy, and true. So if there is no good, holy, and true thing here, so where did this evil being come from? Uh, evil by itself would um, not exist. It's not possible. Augustine talked about evil being the negation of good. It's like darkness. Darkness is just the absence of light. So there's evil being this concept doesn't work. All right, let's go to the third door. Finally, you have God exists and he is good. Now, how do I explain evil? Now, that leads into all the conundrum of the problem of evil theodicies, right? I don't know how far you want me to go with these, because that's a whole discussion and that can lead us down a lot of rabbit trails, brother. So help me. Oh, I'd be happy to hear a short version. <laughs> Such a thing possible. Be, be, well, be, look, look, there is evil. It's here. Yeah. So if God is good, then, you know, what are we going to do about that? What do we do about it? Right. And that is a, actually a, a good starting point with that one. A lot of times we think evil is uh, God's job to take care of, but we don't realize is sometimes God puts the evil in front of us so we can deal with it ourselves. And in the process of dealing with it ourselves, we actually become better men and women. Look at the concept of bravery, Perry. I can't possibly be brave unless there's danger. It's an oxymoron. It's impossible otherwise. You can't build strength unless there's something to resist you so you can build your strength from. Yes. Uh, you can't build character unless there's a storm that you know, or some kind of a difficulty that you have to go through so you can build that character and become a stronger man. So the process of world-making theodicy is what a um, 
uh, Hick and other philosophers have argued well that one of the reasons God does allow suffering, pain, and uh, uh, turmoil in the world is so he can grow his children into mere children to adults. And you cannot become the man or woman you need to be unless you struggle. And struggle forms your character. That's one avenue of approach. God allows these things so he can form us as he allows a coal to be pressed together to make the diamond. As he allows the, uh, the caterpillar to go through the cocoon of suffering in order for it to become the butterfly. It is a structure that the seed must fall into the ground and break for the tree to emerge and form the apples that come from that. There must be a breaking in order for there to be a creation. It is the structure of reality. I don't know any athlete at any level worth their salt or a scholar who has not spent meticulous hours studying practicing to the point where some people consider it a form of suicide. But it's, you, you, it is a form of suicide, but you're killing off the part of you that is not who you want to be. Like Michelangelo was saying one day, what do you do when you're building something? No, I'm peeling off what's not there. Uh, where you're building off and taking a rock, a stone, and you're chopping away what should not be there. This is God's process of forming us. This is one of the reasons God allows evil. And by the way, uh, important point, I put an article together, and maybe you can Google and pull it up for your listeners. It's called Seven Things I Learned from the Death of My Son. It was published by Christianity Today um, about three years ago. Um, that's a helpful article where you put that together. And one of the points I made in there is that suffering is not the same thing as evil. Not mm. all evil is suffering, but not all e suffering is evil. Uh, take, for example, um, having a cancer or something spread through your body. Now, that is a type of suffering per se. It's a type of suffering, but it's not an evil act per se. Uh, right. Me, me uh, robbing you of your livelihood is evil. You dropping a hammer on your toe is suffering, but it's not evil. Unless it was on my toe by your hand, but et cetera. <laughs> right. Yeah. So there's a difference. Um, me uh, going through a process of honing my body to the point like Michael Phelps did, one of the world best Olympians, won more gold medals than anyone in history, to a point where I suffer enough so I can become the best possible athlete in the world is not evil, but it is painful. So not all suffering is evil. But most evil is suffering, although that's the case, always the case. There are times when people can do evil and walk away what looks like unscathed, betray their spouse, betray their country, uh, turn their back on those they love and love them and look like nothing happened. They don't realize inside them is growing the seed and the cancer of sin that's going to spread later. So it is possible to do evil and not suffer, at least not immediately. And it's possible to suffer for righteousness' sake. So that is a perspective to think about in that regard. Another way of looking at that, as I mentioned earlier, is that evil itself can't exist on its own. You can't even have a concept or a construct or a hypothesis of what is even evil itself without first positing and understanding that there is something that actually grounds that and makes it evil. If you eliminate God from the equation, then you eliminate the whole discussion of ultimate good and evil. It's out of the picture, baby. What are you talking about? It's survival of the fittest. 
Darwin is right. The strong survives and the weak die. Deal with it. Ah, but Darwin is wrong. Darwin's wife was right. There is a savior and he will overcome all evil. Evil will overcome good in the short term. In the long term, Jesus' head will crush the serpents. And I think that story is in all the mythologies of the world, by the way. I think God has strategically placed it there. Well, I think what a person is really presented with when you look at door number one, door number two, door number three, is, okay, so which way do you want it? <laughs> like, you're going to decide, at some level, you're going to decide what to believe because circumstances cannot truly force upon you what your belief system is. You, you have some choice and well, there's a degree to which you say, I'm going to pick door number one and I'm going to commit to door number one. And I'm just going to live that way. I am going to order my life assuming that God is good, even though I am having a really, really bad day right now. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, when I look at people who've chosen the other two doors, they're not too happy. And I'm not using happy in the shallow sense of the word. Yes. I don't see a lot of peace or joy or comfort or anything. It's like, well, you know, Darwin was right. We're just going to sidestep this question. And it's just meaningless. You're just kicking a can down the road that you're going to have to deal with later. Mm -hmm. That's been my observation. Yeah, and the clinical research um, uh, bears that out, Perry. Those who are religious in their inclinations and their presuppositions are ultimately happier people. It's not just because it's um, a manifestation of their own delusions, but maybe a reality grounded in ontology that they are actually grounding in something greater than themselves that's reminding them that to find true happiness in life is the, the very words of Rick Warren's book that came out a number of years ago. The uh, Purpose Driven Life was a best-selling book in the world. The very first line is this. It's not about you. <laughs> that's a good place to start wrapping it up. So it, once you realize this life is not about you, it's about somebody greater than yourself. And you know what's interesting, Perry? That road, door number three, yeah. standing there, when I look closely at him, I see a pierced hands, Perry. I see blood wounds. I see wounds in his head. I'm not just looking at esoteric God sitting on a throne smoking a cigar. No, I see a God who suffered. It says, because I live, you shall live too. And I'm looking at him and saying, you suffered too, didn't you? He said, yes. And I will redeem every tear and every blood spot in the history of the world, I will give it a reason and I will bring justice where you see no justice. I will bring light where there is no light. I will bring hope where there is no hope. And I will ultimately bring life where there is no life. And the evidence for that is in the Christian church itself. The organization of the church is the greatest humanitarian relief organization in all of the world. We've started more hospitals, more schools, more civic organizations, more, orga more orphanages than any other organizations in the history of the world combined. And it's based on a belief in resurrection and not just 
yes, I believe there was erection and there will be a resurrection, but it's I choose to live in a resurrection story in my life. When you held Enoch in your arms and he passed out of this life, you said, I will live in a resurrection story. Yeah. Because it's true, Perry. Not because it works for me, but because it's real. And that gives me hope beyond hope. So you've written some books where people could explore these thoughts much more deeply. If there was a book that would speak most directly to which door you choose and the rationale behind it, what would you suggest people read of your writings? Well, as I mentioned the earlier article I wrote by Christianity Today, I recommend the website Logically Faithful. I have a podcast similar to yours, what you're doing, where people can actually tap into the interview I did with you, brother. Yeah, which is great, by the way. I do go through the story in detail and provide some apologetical resources as well as some existential and emotional resources for people who are going through the trouble and pain right now. So I recommend the website Logically Faithful or also on iTunes. You can check that out as well. If I'm, by, I'm actually working on another book right now on the very topic you're discussing on the issue of walking through suffering and redeeming your culture and being productive through your suffering and not allowing that to destroy you, but to remake you into a whole new man and woman better than you've ever been before. And that is something that God is in the work of doing. If I may plug in another, um, Tim Keller's book in the process really helped me. Uh, I think it was very helpful. It's called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Mm. I think I've read that book almost three times already. Mm. I recommend that one. Of course, C.S. Lewis's classic, The Problem of Pain, is just brilliant. Mm. I recommend that one as well. Well, Caldoun, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you doing this and for everybody's benefit. We we had agreed on a different topic. Mm-hmm. And then I got into Caldoun's story. I'm like, let's talk about this, which probably it's like, yeah, okay, well, and yeah, in the middle of Wednesday afternoon, we're going to drag out, you know, the sad story. And But Caldoun agreed to do it. And thank you for cutting a vein and bleeding with us a little bit here. It means a lot. And let's circle back and pick up the other topic. Let's do this again. There's a lot of fascinating rabbit holes that we can go down. So, Thanks for your time and for sharing your heart today. It was an honor, Perry. Thank you. God bless. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com. Fingerprints.com.